You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Eric Sayward, so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Mark. Hi, I'm Richard. And, um, well, obviously Lee's still away and Simon couldn't make it today, so we've got an extra special guest this week. And later on, we're going to be talking about the reason why Richard is our extra special guest. But before we do that, Eric Sayward. That's why we're gathered here today, guys. And uh, Richard, you won't know this, but regular listeners to this podcast will be expecting a 60-minute long rant from me about Eric Sayward. I'm expecting the cloister bell to be dubbed in over the top of the entire episode. I I was kind of aware you weren't a huge fan, JR. I I picked that up enough from things you've written. Well, but the thing is, if you're going to actually sit down and talk about somebody for an hour, it's going to be really dull if you just rant about it. Of course. And besides, uh, no, I think there are good things to say about Eric as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to take this opportunity to, you know, when I do the podcast or when I write something, I will try and weigh things up. You know, Richard, you know exactly the same yourself. You try and weigh, your, your book is a perfect example of whatever your opinions are in the book, you try and weigh it up with the opposing opinions so that the reader can make their own minds up. Yeah, I think I did. I tried a lot of the time there to not put my opinion in unless I thought I had a personal um, reason, you know, like I was involved in some way or I had direct personal experience that was relevant. Where I didn't, I tried to avoid it. And perhaps I could have avoided even more. I mean, some people have said, well, did we need to know that you thought the trial of the Time Lord was dire? You know, was it was it not sufficient oh. that, that most people thought it was dire? Yeah, that's not like you're exactly uh, going against the tide with that. No, anyway. I mean- it, there was what was quite funny about some of the feedback before it was published, when it was just being read in manuscript stage by various people, was that a couple of people who, you know, very kind of well-known names in fandoms sort of said to me, oh, you know, that's a bit fannish for you to give an opinion there. And I was thinking, well, no, in any biography or history, you know, quite often you'll get, you know, some peripheral opinion from the author. It's difficult for it not to slightly bleed in. And of course, yeah. I was more personally involved. And also, what's wrong with having a fan opinion anyway? So long as it doesn't become an overall exercise in, in you know, justice. Yeah, and you choosing which side of the story to exactly. take and putting that across. Exactly. And besides, when I read a book like that, I like, and particularly that book, because, you know, that's a period of Doctor Who that people do have strong opinions about. And I do like to know, I would like to know, you know, what the author's thinking and what his opinion is. I think it's an, it, that's one of the reasons why people keep coming back again and again to that era, because, it, you know, so much happened that was not necessarily to do with the actual content of the programme that it's forevermore going to be divisive. Yeah going to have rows and, and opinions flying backwards and forwards and I think that's I think that's a good thing really. Do you think 
because I mean, you know, we were just talk before we started re- recording. We were just talking about forums and things like that. Do you think? Because the way people are going on forums, you'd think the same thing was happening now. Do you think Doctor Who's kind of lost its way and Stephen Moffat's lost the plot and all this kind of stuff? Well, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, you know, I think it's very tough to produce that show to the standard that's required. I think it always was really tough. I think the parameters are, are obviously different now. You know, yes, they have more money, but they've still got, you know, huge kind of critical pressure um, they know that whatever they do is going to be chewed over to the end. Mm. And they're a very, very successful, high-profile BBC One show, which was, of course, not necessarily the case 30 years ago. And therefore, they have their own expectations from the BBC, you know, who want it to keep its audience. It, it's thing. It's got the commercial imperative now as never before in that, you know, there's a demand to kind of keep feeding the machine so that all those licenses, all that product, you know, there are so many people whose livelihoods depend on on the, the continuing success of Doctor Who. So the fact that Stephen Moffat, although, of course, he has a team around him, is essentially the showrunner. The the pressure, I don't think you can underestimate the pressure that he's under. And, of course, he's also running Sherlock. Yeah, yeah. I think he does a bloody good job on both, to be honest. Oh, he's amazingly talented. Yeah. No doubt about it. But I I don't think it would take a, a genius with peculiar insight to come to the conclusion that having done both for the last few years, he must be absolutely knackered. And when people are very tired i think the stress that they have to deal with is just kind of multiplied and i i suspect and i would hope that he just keeps out of the whole um uh, fan dynamic uh because i just can't see how that would help him because even if you know even if he's sitting there thinking you know and that was a crap episode i wish we'd done this i wish we'd done it's not going to help him to hear that it's also being pulled apart on every forum no quite he, he has well, he has keep... stepped away from twitter hasn't he and, yes uh... and i think he has to keep his <laughs> his eyes on the horizon and not micromanage. I think when, and one of the mistakes perhaps that John Nathan Turner made was he got so involved with fandom that it affected his ability to see clearly the decisions that really should have been taken, you know, in, in a different context. And all of which brings us nicely back to uh, John Nathan Turner's partner in crime. <laughs> That's a very, very <laughs> loaded way of putting it. Well, yeah, but I don't... Mm, well, the, the, the way I look at it is... Right, let's go back. To, uh, what I don't want to do with this episode is just go through the Eric Sayward stories and say, oh, that was good, that was crap, this bit was no. good, that bit was crap. I'd like to look... You know, I like to think about why he did the things he did, what the you know reasons for that were, how that sort of had a knock-on effect to what happened afterwards. You know, if there were mistakes, why the mistakes were made. And, and you know, I did write a piece ages ago called The Men Who Killed Doctor Who, and in which I singled out Bidmead and Saywood for changing the direction of the show. And what my contention was that because they were trying to make a more grown-up show, so the show was growing up with the audience, what they didn't do was secure each new generation of children so that by the end of the show's run, your audience was narrowing because it wasn't getting the kids in like it had. But don't you think, I'm going to interrupt you there and just... Yeah, that's all right. 
But don't you think that you could also, uh, as valid an argument as to the content of the show, was the scheduling? And I think that putting it at an evening slot, the slot that wasn't always consistent, meant that some of those, it just didn't feel like a show anymore that the younger end of the audience could easily find. And it was still just pre-video. I mean, obviously some videos, but they were the minority. So I think suddenly an awful lot of that audience that had come to it naturally on a Saturday had had kind of were, were not there anymore and on yeah, saturday yeah. The, on saturdays the problem was that the older end of the audience had deserted it yes yes you, i think the viewing figures went up quite a bit when they switched it to the the sort of weekday format but i think they were probably more casual viewers rather than people who would come back to it again and again oh, maybe they went up colossally i mean you know that first season the first peter davison season i mean they were getting nine million in um, some yeah. episodes compared to sort of five at best the year before so that was nearly double but as you say, it was it was a different sort of section of the population who were watching it on the Mondays, on the Tuesdays, yeah. whatever. But I feel the controller of BBC One, you're yeah, yeah, that fussy. I mean, you know, they will still analyse audience uh, audiences and, and work out, you know, the proportion of of the, the different age ranges that are watching. But just as important, and I think this is something that is rarely talked about, are the what they call the AIs, the 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 index, Absolutely, yeah, and and I yeah. think that you know now Doctor Who, um, whatever fans say, it's interesting that a lot of the episodes, like this recent run, has clearly been, you know, the lukewarm reception for some of the episodes is not reflected in the AIs, which no, the general, certainly mid eighties, yeah, the, high 80s, the general maybe. public are loving it. And and if you look back to the 80s, one of the problems Doctor Who had was that the AIs were not terribly high and didn't really, they were kind of plateauing all the way through that kind of Peter Davison period. So although the audiences in terms of figures were quite high, the appreciation was not that, was, was below yeah. average. The thing I find now is when Russell T Davis' Doctor Who was on, and, you know, patently that was a success, I had, I'd go into the office at work and, like, two guys would say to me, oh, what did you think of Saturday's episode? But now that all these people are claiming, oh, Doctor Who's losing its audience and it's not a success anymore, now I go into work and five or six people ask me what I thought of Doctor Who and they're all loving it. I do think that the, one of the things that's, I mean, it might sound a bit state the bleeding obvious, but it's the programme's fortunes are very, very wrapped up with the charisma and star quality of the lead actor. Yeah. And I think, you know, casting, one of the things I've always believed, that casting Peter Davison was a masterstroke at the time because he was just, he was very current, he was very appealing to a wide audience. And, you know, he really did sort of almost single-handedly refresh the brand. It's a hideous word that, that now people band around. The mm. brand. But Matt, in Matt Smith, you know, I think that he's absolutely one of the finest actors to have played the part. And he doesn't have the, you know, tenant, I think, was possibly more popular with the general public. He's certainly more of a pin-up. Um, you know, the girls really yeah. love the tenant. But I think Matt Smith is so talented um, that, that that's one of the reasons why the AIs are probably so good because I think, he carries it. And I think Matt's really popular with the kids as well. Yes, he's funny. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I think yeah, Tennant got more of a, you know, I'm generalising horribly, but Tennant was more of a doctor for the teens, whereas Matt's more of a doctor for the kids. And that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I just think, I think that that casting was just genius i mean mm. 
um, and and every time a new doctor is cast, it's like the throw of the dice, because you know I, Tom Baker used to say he thought the part was actor proof, and I just think that's crap. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's no part is actor proof. You know, it, and you can also put a really fine actor. Uh, into a part where they're just not right for it, and it or it doesn't work for some reason. And I always think with Colin, uh, you know, the problems that Colin had were largely imposed on him. You know, he wasn't really given the opportunity no. until years later to to do what he was capable of as an actor. You know, he was he, there were too many um, things being defined for him, whether it, not just the silly costume, but but you know the way that that character was written. And we're going back now to Eric Sayward. I think yes. I particularly think, you know, that, that Saywood's take on the Sixth Doctor ca- character at that point, he, you know, it was fine to do that thing at the very beginning to make it different, to make the Doctor kind of angry and mixed up and arrogant and moody. But he didn't quickly enough grasp the thought that actually if you have a whole season of that, you're going to alienate the audience. And then, of course, you've got Attack of the Cybermen and Revelation of the Daleks, in which the Doctor doesn't even figure in the plot for an entire episode. Well, I think another fair criticism of Eric is that his interest in... You know, he he was very interested in writing a particular kind of action-based dynamic script, probably that owed more to kind of film series. Yeah. And, and by bringing that, importing that into Doctor Who, which of course he did very successfully with Earthshock, um, but it was the law of diminishing returns. And, you know, you look at Attack of the Sidemen, which was just a bloody mess, really, in every every department. Literally. <laughs> yeah, really, yeah, you know, quite literally, yes, pun intended. Um, and And you have to think, well, he had a very heavy hand in that, and what was he thinking? <laughs> but there you are. He, yeah, was, he yeah. was probably thinking, and and I'm going to stick up for him again now because you know I'm sure you you've got more criticisms to throw in his direction. But I think the pressure of that job very different from the pressure on the producer, but the the pressure he had to deliver not just his own material but to rewrite other people's mm. material and to keep mining and looking for new material i mean i think that was a very very exposed position to be in and he also did... he had the external sorry to cut you off yeah. also he had the external pressure coming from above you had a, a controller who yes. publicly stated he didn't like the program and seemed well, even, very keen even, to pre that, even pre that i don't think upstairs were hugely interested in doctor who mm. and i think that eric also didn't have what terence dix had um, in his relationship with a producer who had a story sensibility and was interested in narrative and characters and you know John Nathan Turner for all his many many strengths he, that was his huge Achilles heel he just didn't really get the stories and so you basically had Eric Sayward left on his own and I think shouted at or or, or you know in trouble with John when something random didn't please him, but by and large left to his own devices. You can imagine, actually, almost all the previous sort of producer, script editor partnerships sort of sitting in the office, having a fag and a glass of whiskey in the afternoon, concocting stories together, and that's the one thing you can't imagine J&T doing. No. No, I don't. I I think that what J&T would do would be he would seize on an idea that appealed to him, like I want a story in a circus or I want this story to be called this or whatever. But there would be an incredibly broad brushstroke idea, a headline 
But after that, the detail would elude him. And I think he, I just don't think he was terribly interested in, in the actual nitty gritty of the storytelling. He, no. wanted, he wanted to know who he could shoehorn into it, you know, yeah. which actors he could um, attract to, as we know, to going to give it a bit of zhuzh. Yeah, how many parts have I got and who can I cast? Exactly. That's, you know, John Nathan, that, uh, that you know, you said a minute ago, uh, the, the criticisms I was going to bring up about Eric Sayward. Right, let's go back to the visitation. And this, this is what I want to do. I don't want to criticise Eric Sayward. I've done enough of that in the past. I'd like to not do that. I'd like to say, well, let's, let's start. With, but, <laughs> but first of all, we should talk about how he got the job, the job of script editor. Because... He did, uh, I can, uh, can confirm it wasn't casting couch. <laughs> <laughs> but he... Well, this is the odd thing. He was this young chap who'd written a couple of radio plays... Mm-hmm. And basically, John Nathan Turner doesn't have a regular script editor at the time. Bidmead's gone. Root's just in doing, you know, the nitty-gritty part of the script editor's job, but he's not involving himself. Let's, let's be clear. Anthony Root was doing what the BBC fabulously always called a holiday relief attachment. Yes. Um, so he was only going to be there for, I think, three months. Exactly. As a, a stopgap. He wasn't, he wasn't there ferreting out writers and stories. No. So John Nathan Turner's basically been left with the job of finding writers and finding stories himself. How did he come across Eric Sowood? This is one thing I've never quite got a handle on. Well, How he, he, yeah, go on. I think what happened was, I think all the things you're saying are absolutely spot on. He, and I think it also tells you the search for the script editor after Bidmead tells you something about the kind of malaise that was already setting in with the show. Yeah. It was not an attractive gig. I don't think it was particularly well paid for a start. And I think ev- everybody in that industry, the writers and things that were around at the time, you know, they knew that Doctor Who came with a degree of baggage. And if you look at the predecessors, I mean, I remember Anthony Reid saying, I, I went into it, and he was very experienced. I'm only going to do a year. Douglas Adams, who was relatively inexperienced when he started only did a year um and that was partly because obviously he had other fish to fry bidmead only did a year because he was yeah. snowed up you know the workload i think kind of completely crushed him but also i think he just realized that nothing significant was going to change so he thought well i've done this i can't do any more and i don't want to repeat myself so when it came to finding a replacement for bidmead i don't think there was a long queue of people saying i'd love to no. do it no i think they asked johnny Byrne who, frankly, you know, I think was a kind of hack, really, who'd done the rounds of various shows, and John knew him from all creatures. And Johnny Byrne was doing too well. He didn't need that hassle. You know, he knew. Yeah, yeah. So he said no. And then the other person John considered was Teddy Rhodes, who was the script editor on All Creatures and also on Triangle, and was an extremely flamboyant camp um, very vitriolic about people. You know, he was a very interesting character. He got sadly he was murdered a few years ago. But uh-huh. he he's an interesting man, and he did a lot of this kind of popular end uh, script editing. But was had no interest in Doctor Who. So again, you know, he passed. And so I think time was running out. As you say, they'd got Anthony Root to to do a bit of plate spinning, but no, no one was getting on with the process of really looking ahead. And you know, it's always a show that eats material. And so Sayward, I think, was almost like it, it landed in his lap because he was a young, as you say, a young, fairly green writer 
who, with a bit of ambition with a bit of ambition and you know when it was mooted that he i think he would have probably thought well yeah this is a good gig for a few months and interestingly he was never contracted for very long periods a lot of his contracts were sort of for three months six months i think the longest he ever had was a year-long contract yeah that's how he, uh, in fact, he used that to his advantage for the amount of stories he was able to write, wasn't he? Well, I think he has to get round the old, the old yeah. system. Yeah, it was always my understanding that he would be on a contract and then when he came to the end of one contract, he'd have a month off before he started the next one so he could write another story. That's right, and that's also, of course, the other reason for that is that if you're going to continue to employ someone on those sort of short-term contracts, if if their contracts continue to kind of go from one to the other, after a while, legally, you have to employ Put them. on a longer one, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think but, the, but, other but, things, uh, the other things I'll just very quickly say that... Go on. Thing, ...of course, Eric, having got that job, what he didn't bring with him was a big book of contacts. He didn't no. know. He And I think this became a big problem because he didn't have the contact. He couldn't pick the phone up and say, oh, hello, me old mate, would you fancy doing this? And even Bidmead, who wasn't, you know, kind of hugely experienced, he somehow managed to get a handle on that, you know, quicker. And I think Eric, very diffident, quite shy, quite... Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas Bidmead, an ex-actor is a real charmer. If you ever meet him, I mean, he's a real schmoozer and he is able to charm you and convince you. Sometimes I think afterwards you think, hang on a minute, I was sitting there nodding and I'm not sure I agree with that. (laughs) And and that's a real skill, a real skill for a script editor to have. Whereas I think Eric was very, you know, find it hard to look you in the eyes, was shy, spoken, thoughtful, introspective. And I think when his... You know, when he was under pressure and stress, sometimes you can see in letters and memos that his anger would come out there. But I don't think it would have come out if you'd gone to see him face to face. I think it must have been a lot harder for him because, you know, even the most successful, most revered teams like Holmes and Dix and what have you, they always had the producer that had that sort of writing experience that would back them up. Yes. And obviously uh, Eric Sayward didn't have that at his disposal. And therein lies the other part of the tragedy, in that because he didn't, he did not have the gravitas and authority to keep some of John's excesses in, in you know, in their kind of proper place. Perhaps if Bidmead had continued, he would have, because he'd been there from the beginning, yeah. he would have been able to stand up to some of John's sort of sillier thoughts and interventions. But I think Eric was undermined always by the fact that he didn't have you know look you look at robert holmes and he man had natural authority he was much older pipe smoking sort of headmasterly you know there would have been no nonsense i think and you know there's certain people have an aura of you know you're not going to mess with me and i think that what john did increasingly was weed those people out so he didn't have to deal with them and made sure that the people who were were in his court were biddable and you know kind of on side and the problem for eric was that he he just didn't have that natural authority to be able to sort of say no this is my corner here's a line you can't cross it and all the rest of it i think he just got very pushed from pillar to post really i think eric's other problem eric because if i know him I know. <laughs> it's so awful, isn't it? It's also slightly like he's died, and of course he's still alive and well, I, sus- I, I assume. And so it's sort of slightly odd that we're talking about him almost in the past <laughs> tense. I don't, I don't, there's a 
possibility I might actually be meeting him in a few weeks, but we won't go into that. Well, I think we should. Be, well, it'd be a bit like the uh, last scene in Mordrin Undead if it happens. I'm sure if we actually <laughs> shake hands or anything, the room will probably white out and time will go off on a different track. But... <laughs> Red just... wine is a great help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. His other problem, of course, was that he didn't, when he came to the job, he didn't know Doctor Who. I mean, he wrote The Visitation basically he wrote the visitation as a remake of the time warrior because when they said to him do you fancy writing a doctor who he said okay i've never really seen it and his girlfriend said oh i remember one from years ago and this is what happened and basically put that down on paper yeah i don't know whether i entirely go along with that i know, I know she was supposed to sort of be studying that mm. period at the time you know the uh the, the sort of plague era. But I, I think the thing is that you don't necessarily have to come into that job knowing Doctor Who no. that well, um, but you do have to come in with... An understanding know, of what the programme does well, and is. Quickly. I think you yeah. kind of have to it's talk about hitting the ground running, to use a hideous cliche. I think he probably didn't have very much time to get his head around the fact that, you know, this show has some very particular dynamics. And yes. I think also, of course, he did have that massive structural problem that if you have a doctor and three companions and recurring characters like the master, you know, those things become a, a complex problem in terms of doing justice to all of those. And it's not impossible. And people always, you know, say, I, I remember one of the things that really struck me was, going, oh, the ridiculous brief that Eric Sayward gave to, uh, to Grimwade for the writing of Planet of Fire. You know, he had to write this character out, he had to write another character in, he had to use the master, he had to use Chameleon, it had to be set in Lanzarote. Well, I thought there's, there, was, there were no fewer demands on Robert Holmes when he wrote Terror of the Autons. He had to write in a new companion, yes. he had to bring in yeah. the master, he had to do... So good professional writers can cope with very specific briefs. Absolutely. But, but I, I think that was one of the strengths of the Russell T. Davis era, actually. He'd give these briefs to writers, but the writers were clever enough to sit down and kind of logically work their way around it until the story they came up with, nine times out of ten, suited... Well, the brief down to the ground. I think you're absolutely right. I think the difference is you can have a very, very detailed brief, but it's then in the execution the re and the, the realisation that the thing either does or doesn't work. And obviously, you know, it depends on your point of view, but Planet of Far, albeit very entertaining, does have quite a lot of Gruyere-sized holes in it. Mm. <laughs> they are a problem they seem to have right across all the various production teams was... Um, stories falling through and, and that kind of thing. And I can imagine that must be incredibly stressful, they had, particularly as a, a new guy on the job. I think they had the highest write-off rate um, for, for Doctor Who. I mean, there was once a very good article of somebody uh, like Richard Bignall, I, I, don't, I can't attribute it to him, but I think it may have been him, put together a list of all the stories that were where there was money you know, kind of paid for someone mm. to develop a storyline or a script. And then you go through the 70s and it's sort of the same sort of numbers. When you get to about 1980, 81, 82, you know, suddenly there's colossal, you know, it really leaps up. Um, and they were trying all sorts of writers. I mean, a lot of Blake Seven writers uh, were being paid for stuff that never made it to to Doctor Who, you know. And, um, and so they were certainly looking, they were scrabbling around trying to find stuff and of course because john was frantically trying to find other projects he would quite often rope in a writer that was being involved in another show he was trying to get off the ground and say i'll mm. tell you what while we're working on that how about doing a doctor who and i suspect that poor old eric sayward 
Uh, I'm saying poor old in that context, not in the whole context, because I don't <laughs> think we should limit our pity because he was being paid and, you know, all the rest of it. But I think he was sometimes given a fait accompli of, oh, I've commissioned this guy to do a story. And then he'd have been thinking, oh, no, I've got to actually make this work. And actually, he, you know, uh, Robert Holmes obviously rewrote considerable amounts of the stories he had during his time. So in, uh, so much so that often his name would end up on there and mm. the other writer's name would be taken off. But even if it wasn't like Jerry Davis and Revenge of the Cybermen, there's nothing of Jerry Davis's original script in Revenge of the Cybermen. No, if you've seen it, you'll know why. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. I do have a copy, actually, yes, in that old DWB compendium. Do you yes, remember that? I, I do, I do. And, and, and also, more recently, I mean, Russell... T did massive amounts of rewrites. Mm, I mm. think huge, huge chunks of of the scripts that weren't his were were reworked, and and a lot of stuff came from him. And I suspect that it's one of those shows where whoever it just has to be, yeah. And I think Chris Bidmead said very uh, astutely, it's a show that um, you can you can carry on doing that to your heart's content. In other words, as much as you've got to give it, it will take and take more. Yeah, yeah. I think that Bidme did a lot of rewriting, as, the, as all of them did. I think Sayward did, but I think Sayward also sometimes, because of his personality... Well, I think sometimes his personality meant that he would get very morose, and mm. I think he would sort of give up. And there's all sorts of evidence of this in the paperwork, that stories would be worth... Well, I, got, I got, yeah... I got the impression that when he started, he probably didn't realise that it, this would be something he would have to do as part of the job, and probably, you know, it was something he came to resent, especially in probably the first couple of years. I think he probably resented that he didn't have full freedom to say to certain writers, do you know what, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. So he had to continue certain relationships because because of John or because of the head of department or whatever. And he had to try to find new people. And a lot of that took him away from perhaps the things he was more interested in. I think it was a very, very wearing, draining job. He undoubtedly did it far too long. Um, yeah. But, you know, one of the reasons he did it too long was was a, well, that reasonable freelance reason of it's a job and they keep asking me to do it. So what do you think of, you know, this is... Uh, this is, to me, one of the most fascinating bits of the sort of Eric Sayward story is season 20. It's yeah. the anniversary year, and, you know, with Let's and Dicks, they knew the 10th year should be uh, special, and they had the Daleks and the Master, and, you know, they went, kind of almost went to town on, you know, even Carnival of Monsters is almost like an analogy for the series itself. They kind of went to town on giving you an anniversary season, a bit like Moffat's just done, that kind of homages and references and feels like a celebration. Mm. But Eric Sayward and John Nathan Turner with season 20, it's all very well saying afterwards, oh, there's an element from the past in every story. <laughs> That's not really, strictly speaking, anything That's like spin. true. That's an early example of spin. Exactly. It's a, oh, almost an urban myth. Yeah. <laughs> but even apart from that, the elements that they do have in those stories, it's like, where are the Daleks? Where are the Cybermen? It's yeah, we, the Daleks were meant to be in there, to be fair. I know they were, yes, yes. They so were. the Daleks were part of the plan, and that would have been a big, spectacular end to the season. But the rest of the season, even the stories that are uh, great... Yeah. Okay, I'm going to have to go in there and say, just, I mean, I don't think season 20 is the greatest season. No. 
for lots of reasons. But if you look at the, the celebratory 20th anniversary aspect of it, it, it did start with a story taking the Doctor back to Gallifrey. Well, yes, yes, yes. With, with, a, with the same villain from the, from the 1973 year. So there was a nice bit of kind of circular... There was, in, yeah. Bring, and it was going to end with a Dalek story, and the Master was going to crop up during the season, and yes. the Black and White Guardians were going to appear. So... We're, well, you I was kind of coming, I was starting there, but I was coming to a different point, really. And my and the point I was coming to was, it's not, it's not so much that it's the Daleks and the Cybermen and the celebratory aspects. But I was going to say, as a season of Doctor Who, that's kind of, it should have been a celebration. It doesn't feel like a celebration because it's kind of flat. It's not very colourful. But that's the execution. Yeah. I, mean, I think, I think yes, of course, you know, sometimes, I mean, Arc of Infinity is just pretty bloody god awful. And I did feel terribly sorry for Clara that that was the moment where she encountered the fifth doctor. <laughs> I think Stephen Moffat put that and Dragonfire in <laughs> to amuse himself. Quite possibly. I mean, it was... There were so many other things he could have chosen. Well, maybe he thought of them as moments of crisis for the Doctor that Clara needed to be around for because they were moments of narrative crisis. Possibly, but yeah. um, but Arc of Infinity, no, I mean, I think, you know, that a lot... I mean, that was that was one of those classic poorly directed stories. Um, I, I don't think the writing's too bad on that. It's the direction that lets it down. The direction is very... The, the Just the, the look of it is cheap and mm. and and the casting's a bit ropey. Um, you know, the famous story about Leonard Sachs, you know, who couldn't remember his own name, poor love. You know, that that means that in that very pressured situation, if you're going for take after take because a, a, an older actor is struggling with his words, which is a really horrible situation to be in, um, that does compromise other things. But Ron Jones, I mean, he, you know, he was a lovely, lovely man, I should say. Um, but lovely men don't necessarily make the best directors. No, and especially on a programme like Doctor Who. Uh, I'm not going to use the word vision. It's not a vision that you need for Doctor Who. It's, it's the will, the will to get in there and get stuck in and do it, really, isn't it? Well, I think, I think it's that classic thing that most of the directors working on Doctor Who in that era were serials directors, whose other work would be things like Angels or whatever. Mm. And all of those other serial shows, the, the main requirement was to get it done quickly on time. And Doctor Who, that was absolutely the case as well. But of course, Doctor Who, the, the, the narrative content of it required imagination in the direction, which, OK, even under the pressures of time, certain directors, as we well know, um, were capable of injecting that extra element of energy and adrenaline and, and imagination. But but every time you'd have one of those, you'd then have three or four directors who were just serials directors getting the job done, framing it you know, yeah. covering it. And fact, that, uh, tw season 20 is full of that. If, in fact, it's John Nathan Turner again. In fact, John Nathan Turner is this man with all this panache and all this theatricality, and yet he's getting these hack directors in to cripple his show. Well, I think the thing about that, again, to kind of slightly balance that view, is that as a producer at that time, he had to use a certain, you know, that he would have been, it's like Mary Ridge, who directed Terminus in that season, you know, she'd been around that department for a long time. He would have been under a certain amount of pressure to use directors. And earlier producers had had to use people like Paddy Russell, who were far from being popular 
either with their cast or or with the production teams because they were tricky and irascible and difficult and you know nobody really wants to work in that environment um but they were staff or they were people that the head of department still wanted to give work to and as a producer with x many slots a year he didn't have total freedom just to have who he wanted obviously he would have wanted some people who who he liked to work with as well but principally who were going to get the job done in time Mm. back on the subject of saywood though and this is well would you agree that season 20 because season 20 always feels to me in terms of its ideas like a little bit of a hangover of the christopher h bidmead high concept science fiction and then season 21 is where eric saywood turns up yes i think you're probably right because if you think about the lead time, you know, how long it took for show to get into production, that season 20 was sort of the first, him inheriting what had been before. Yeah. And probably picking up writers that Christopher H. Bidmead had, or or he and John Nathan Turner certainly had probably spoken to or spoken about or organised. And you don't, and you, but you don't really get a sense of Eric. So Warriors of the Deep is where his, script editorship really kicks off it's it's although having said that something's just occurred to me i mean if you look at the original briefing document that eric sent johnny byrne for arc of infinity it's interesting that eric suggests in that that tegan could be in amsterdam involved in some sort of heist to do with diamonds some <laughs> sort of, and that would <laughs> clearly much more you know van der valk you know again eric's sort of knowledge of film series mm rather than what we actually got where she's sort of randomly turning up and you know she's uh, bizarrely related to that terrible boy yeah. you know <laughs> whereas you know his original thought and perhaps he just you know it was like he had so many fights to to contend with perhaps some things he just sort of thought okay we'll just let that one go but yes I think I, by I think the time he's on his second year he's feeling a bit stronger about it yes. and maybe jnt's feeling a bit weaker about it or maybe jnt's got a bit more confidence in him and he's just letting him go a bit more yeah i never got the impression at any point that john didn't have full confidence in eric yeah i never got the impression that he didn't think eric was talented or... well when i yeah when i say got more confidence in him i mean um can see now that he's more able to do the job got used to the job yeah yeah and I mean, I mean, the classic story in season 21, you know, that's almost entirely Saywood's work is The Awakening. Um, yeah. He was landed with this situation with, with a writer that he kind of had to use because of a political situation, but that writer didn't really deliver. And so the end result was almost completely Saywood's work. But you see, interestingly, Robert Holmes would talk about, you know, this is part of the script of his job on Doctor Who. You very often, like he did with Pyramids of Mars or whatever, you end up writing almost all of it and you don't really get the credit. And that's just part of the job of being script editor on Doctor Who. Whereas I think Eric really did sometimes feel like the Cinderella. You know, I've slugged yeah. my... So I'm doing my day job. I've also saved this show, effectively written it. Another writer is going to get the royalties and the credit. And, you know, I think that did really stick in his craw. In fact, we only know now that Robert Holmes wrote, you know, Pyramids of Mars and the Brain of Morbius because we're Doctor Who fans. And that's the kind of thing we find out. 
Yeah, but I just think that's a very interesting psychological difference that Robert Holmes yeah, yeah. would raise his eyebrows and say, oh, yes, another one, dear boy, that, you know, kind of I had to do this and do that. And I know on other shows, I mean, uh, you know, the script is on Upstairs, Downstairs, a very successful show. Um, you know, he, he had that. I, I'm sure it was true of almost every popular TV series at that time that the script editor frequently ended up doing this, you know, takeover and, and, and having to save a show and, and rewrite it themselves. But I think Eric struggled with the idea that that was part of the remit of the job. Yeah, yeah. It's so much the opposite. Well, I mean, Russell T. Davis obviously wrote that book afterwards and redressed the balance. But, you know, for the first three years, he was writing so much of that show and he was going out under all these other people's names and he never said a word about it, not really, in the magazine or anywhere. Well, I guess with Russell, I always get the impression that, you know, here's this incredible joie de vivre and energy and, you know, uh, and I think that his... His and I'm going to use that word, the V word, vision. His vision for Doctor Who meant that um, it carried all before it. You know, his it, it, yeah. it, he was so sort of the kind of beacon for all that energy. And I think he probably I've never had the sense that he minded that he had to do all that extracurricular work. I think he just thought this is what I'm yeah. prepared to do to get the show to meet my vision. You can imagine actually that at some point he may have sat down and said. Almost like, was it first series of Blake 7 where Terry Nation's name is on every script? Am I misremembering that? That's right, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, well, I can imagine Russell T. Davis coming to the BBC with that, possibly, when, you know, I'm sure first the BBC series was would have been, I'm sure the BBC would have been very, very happy with that. I mean, let's not forget the other difference between Doctor Who then and Doctor Who. When, when Doctor Who came back, I mean, Russell T. Davis was probably the hottest writer in British TV. Yeah point and so you know the cachet of his name and you know Stephen Moffat you know has a, a great cachet in the industry even if you factor out Doctor Who but the fact that you know these are between them the writers who've won awards rightfully so for the stuff that they've done and they have this incredible ability I don't think that talent like that was available to Doctor Who in the 1980s no absolutely not and probably you know hate to say it, but I, I struggle to see who can take over Doctor Who now from Stephen Moffat and do what either of those two writers have done with it. O only insofar as, you know, certain people are ruling themselves out of the job. Yeah, uh, but you know, they might not necessarily be telling the truth. No, no, absolutely. Mind they, you, might I spoke using, to... they might be using that as a negotiation in the salary. Could well be. But I did... Uh, Chris Chibnall I spoke to absolutely face-to-face, -face, and when he said he wasn't interested... You know, I, I think I think it's interesting that perhaps some of them who've got have contributed episodes and things realise going back to what you were asking about Stephen Moffat at the beginning of this, that the pressure that that job that's got nothing to do with absolutely. just the and also Chris Chibnall's been a showrunner on other, other shows. Yeah, perhaps he realises that with Doctor Who the pressures are amplified. And he, oh, just, yeah, yeah. he just doesn't need it. And, you know, he's contributed to it. He's obviously a huge fan. But perhaps the idea of actually taking that leap and being a showrunner is just not appealing. Yeah, and, I would say so, definitely. Okay. Especially now he's had that success, because this was just before Broadchurch, but now he's had the success in Broadchurch. Mm -hmm. It's like, why would you quit, mm. you know, the number one show on ITV? It's his show. You know, there's, yeah. the other thing is that, I mean, for most writers... 
to have their own show, and it's so rare to yeah, get yeah. community, then, you know, Doctor Who, however fantastic it undoubtedly is, 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 a, is a collective, it's a community. And not just that, yeah, yes, but, uh, you know, as well as that, it's also, it is somebody else's show, and I'm not a specific person, but it is, like Stephen Moffat's always saying, I'm just the curator, yeah, yeah, absolutely. it's true. Although that's quite always amuses me because, of course, everybody who makes Doctor Who now, you know, most of the singers, they're all fans. So mm. most of them are aware of, you know, that kind of the famous long leap fallout when uh, people said to John Nathan Turner, you're just the kind of curator, you're the custodian. And I think that didn't sit well with him at all. <laughs> I think he thought it's my show. As he always used to say, it's my show. Yeah, you got the impression that he wanted to take I credit for the it. entire twenty-five years, didn't you? Yes, I think I think there was definitely a you know spilling over of the ego, and you know all all of these people have have powerful egos. They couldn't function if they didn't. But I think that there has been a learning process. I mean, going back to spin, you know, there is now a real attempt to make the messages that come out about the show to be clear and positive, and not to be you know, focusing on the um, little details and the stuff that fans love to talk about and are really interested in. But actually, if you kind of, if you kind of indulge that too much, it would, in the world we live in now, the, yeah. me the media would be constantly stirring the shit, as they do anyway, but you don't want to feed that. You know, you really don't want to kind of get into that relationship. And I think it's quite interesting that we didn't live in a world of social media and so on in the 80s. And had we done so, I suspect that, you know, Doctor Who would have been a very leaky show and there would have been perhaps some explosions and... And Having said that, I think Eric made up for it with his interview when he quit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's a really good point. That perhaps the beginning of, uh, uh, you know, that perhaps was a sea change in things. I mean, that, that was an extraordinary uh, piece of self-harm. It, it was, yeah. And uh, the funny thing is, oh, no, 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 let's... Right, let's go back a bit further. Let's go back to... I was what, are you, bring... what are you steering clear of here? <laughs> Not really. I was going to um, do a bit of self-aggrandizing on behalf of you and me, Richard. But not really, not really. With a huge ladle full of irony. I was only going to say that in Starburst, there's uh, Eric Sayward giving an interview with Starburst that splashed all over the front of the... Uh, the daily tabloids yes. what and happened with you and me richard yeah, yeah absolutely no that's true <laughs> the, the the difference was that that obviously with what with sayward's piece i mean I, it, it amazes me that he didn't ask for copy approval or or at least to have some ability to say do you know what don't say this or don't i know that that stephen payne the editor of starburst then cut some things out of that interview because he actually felt the sense that he couldn't go that far. way. Yeah. You know, there was a feeling that this is, this is just too much. And, and I don't, you know, I think the thing is he wasn't well advised. He, got, he knew he had dynamite on his hands, but he just wanted to be careful that he didn't accidentally blow himself up. <laughs> and I think he did. That's the sad. No, thing. I don't mean Sayward. I mean, pain. <laughs> Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think he had good. I mean, he's a good guy. And I think he had I think he was very troubled by the fact that he thought he was going along for a straightforward interview. And he ended up kind of in a confessional with this man who was just spilling years of tension and pressure 
and and you know bitchiness that came out of frustration you know i don't think i never got the impression that eric eric was not like john in the terms of being a kind of theatrical anecdotalizing but proper upper of the bar so for him to come out with all of that fairly sort of lurid bitchy gossipy stuff it kind of kept it to it, himself really and this was him spilling it out but exactly and that was the damaging thing well should, instead of doing it in front of a microphone he should have done it with some relative he hasn't seen for a couple of years or something well, we haven't met his relatives maybe he did and they all got fed up with it and said eric tell it to someone else we've heard it all before <laughs> I well, thanks to the miracle part, of DVD, Eric, he gets to. Uh, oh, indeed, continue to do that. But you have to remember as well, Eric's partner, Jane Judge, was of course John's secretary for yeah. service, and Graham Williams' mm. secretary. So he did have in his partner someone who would thoroughly understand his point of view. Yeah, that that is like a weird situation, really, isn't it? Mm, talking shop. Yeah, it's kind of. I can't remember what I was reading this morning, but I was reading something this morning about two people. Oh, Brian, no, yesterday in the new DWM, Brian Minchin married his co-script editor on the Sarah Jane Adventures. Well, it happens a lot. I mean, if, yeah, you, go back, yeah. if you go back through the classic series, in fact, I think there's a thread on it somewhere in the form, you know, the number of relationships between directors and actors. I mean, Doug, Douglas Campbell yeah. and his wife, uh, Lenny Main and his wife. I mean, there are loads of, loads of examples, producers. I can, imagine, I, I can imagine that working if you meet somebody on a finite shoot on a programme yeah. or a finite period of work on a programme but if you're staying with that program, if you're both going to be on that program for an extended period of time, you know, to me, that just sounds like a recipe for trouble. Well, it probably is. But also, you, you, what, you can't, we don't live in an ideal world and people fall no. off, or they fall in lust. And, and, you know, you can't, it's very hard to control that. And one of the things as well that, you know, the television environment the entertainment industry, they're a lot of very dynamic, very attractive. I don't just mean physically attractive. Um, the, you know, talent is attractive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got this pressured situation and the rest of it. So it's, it's no surprise that kind of people come together and sometimes it's ships that pass in the night and sometimes it's a lasting relationship. But I think it's very, very difficult, although I think in principle you're right, the idea of saying oh, we shouldn't, you know, kind of... Yeah. Uh, you can't help yourselves. Can it's you? very, very, very difficult, and I think that there are so many examples of it. It's, it. The proof of the pudding is that there are so many people out there who did meet their partners, or even if those relationships didn't stand the test of time. Now, changing the subject completely and entirely, let's talk about the story writing in the eighties. You know, Richard, we mentioned that this morning because we're recording this on the first of June on a Saturday, and we've yeah. been on the forums and people were talking about the eighties on the forums, and I was saying certain things about the story writing in the eighties that I wasn't terribly happy with, which is that it doesn't seem to be a focus in the stories. There's, there seems to be a lot of th you know, you know, the example I gave was Mordrin Undead, mm. in which I said so many of the story elements in there seem to be arbitrary, and the reasons for them being there are to do with plot things further down the line, and the, the characters are... Nothing in there seems to fit in a natural sense. Everything in that story seems to be an imposition. Well, it was a very late replacement for another story, like so many. Oh, uh, right, yeah. Um, and it was meant to be, Turlow's first story was meant to be The Space Whale. Um, oh, yeah, of but, course. Uh, but the, my, uh, my sort of uh, supposition here is that that's kind of a feel for the entire 80s for me, or certainly... Right, sort of, 
Yeah, it's a. Uh, I just. I think it probably was. I mean, yeah. ironically, I think season twenty-two was probably the season where there were fewest. You know, most of those scripts. Kind of, yeah, they 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 went into production, and it was a fairly steady. And I think Sayward. I remember at the time talking to Sayward. Um, and and him feeling very confident about that season and feeling he'd really got it together. He was really pleased with the 45-minute structure. He was really happy with the kind of the tone of the stories and and however much you argue with that, you you could sense that confidence, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was coming to. I was going to say, through the Peter Davison, I couldn't really get a handle on what the stories were about. Season 22 is... I love the Peter Davison stories. <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm not complaining about um, Peter Davison or the era. I just, in terms of... But I love of... some of those stories. I mean, I love Enlightenment. I think that's a really oh. interesting story. Yes. Know. Oh, I'm not going to disagree. I think there's two or three really great stories in the Peter Davison years. A lot of fair to middling stories. but 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 in terms of consistency, I think through Peter Davison, you can't get a really a handle on where the series is going or what it's doing, whereas suddenly in season 22, that kind of lands. Yeah, I don't know. I thought season 21 was pretty consistent in, yes. terms, of, in terms of stories. 21 uh, is almost a dry run for 22, if, it seems to me. Yeah. I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because, you know, your judgments about these things are often... Uh, affected by how you felt about them when you saw them, you know. So there's, it's mm. an astound. Like I love Mordred Undead for reasons that have probably got nothing to do with the, with the clunkiness of some of the the, the story content. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, but I mean, there, you know, the the big broad ideas and that I did really like. I, you know, I liked the idea of kind of eternity being the worst sort of damnation there could be, and so on and so forth. But but I think. I think what you're talking about is this kind of ebb and flow. There, you could go from a story as dense and rich as Kinder to a very traditional, you know, kind of serial like the, the Visitation. Then you know you've got. I think I think throughout the Davison time there was a kind of inconsistency. But then that's something that a lot of people like about it. I know, I know. I've had this um, discussion before in the Stephen Moff in the new series altogether. My favourite series six, which everybody hates. Um, one of the well, things everybody i didn't hate it oh no 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 but what i mean is you know if I, if you pop your head above the parapet and say oh my favorite new series is series six oh, everybody just looks up. yeah everybody looks at me as if to say what the hell are you talking about yeah, well, they're not right that's just their opinion yeah but I, mean, I, I think the thing is that that trying to kind of separate um, your kind of critical reaction to something and your just basic enjoyment of, of the fact that there is Doctor Who on. Mm. You know, I mean, this current series, there are a couple of episodes that really got a drubbing before they were shown by people who'd seen them. So you'd see comments on Twitter or whatever, and the, the Cybermen one was the, the most derided, I suppose. Well, that was your friend, wasn't it, really? Yeah, well, but he wasn't the only one. I mean, and no, he wasn't. certainly subsequently... A lot of other people kind of weighed in there, and I watched it. Uh, well, like, Mark and I were guilty of that as well. We yeah. to see. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't think it was the best episode, and yes, there were elements of it that grated, but I didn't. I found it kind of entertaining enough. Actually, I think one of the things that happened there is because people like Patrick were saying how awful they thought it was. People were actually expecting it to be worse yes, than it was. Definitely. And, yeah. This is the danger of previews, and you know. 
I did yeah, actually didn't have those in the eighties. No, uh, I did actually tell a couple of friends deliberately because I knew they were looking forward to it so much that they were going to be horrendously disappointed by it. And, and were they both they? T- no, because they were then expecting something so bad it would be uh, unwatchable. You did them a favour, then. Yeah, they were actually pleasantly <laughs> surprised with something that probably would have been a real letdown if I hadn't done it. I think Doctor Who, you know, when when it's on firing on all cylinders i it's producing a lot of material you know back in the 80s you're getting 26 episodes a year um until recently you know it was 13 or 14 a year that's a lot of material and i always thought well you have to allow that some of the things will be a brave experiment or a foolhardy experiment or they just won't work and you're sustained by the fact that that then something brilliant comes along i think where it becomes trickier is if you're doing less the focus on what you're doing becomes much more people are just desperate for it to be brilliant yeah and that's such a pressure to be under you know uh, people want every episode of doctor who to be brilliant they did then they do now you know i remember fans talking before terminus was shown and there was this rumor that the ice warriors were going to be in it and and people were really getting kind of very excited at what this was going to be because the few things that have been said john nathan turner said i think it's a very bleak story and all this sort of stuff so people kind of and then what they got they weren't able to judge fairly because it wasn't ever going to live up to their preconceptions you know that's always surprised me though that people well no i when i was a kid i would want to see things like the ice warriors and daleks and cybermen in stories but you know as soon as i passed the age of probably about 11 or 12 (laughs) you know if i heard that the daleks or the cyberman or men or whatever were going to be in something i'd actually find that disappointing because that's that's because puberty and monster fatigue set in maybe time (laughs) but you know as well i think there's also an element there of if I know the Daleks are going to be in it, then whatever the story's about is not going to be a surprise because it's going to be about the Daleks. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, I, I think your heart would sink if you were asked to write a Dalek story because you'd have to think, how on earth, there is no different way of doing this, really. No. It's, and, all, uh, it's like window dressing, isn't it? You know, whether yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a something of the Daleks and whatever the something of the Daleks is, that's the sort of window dressing or the distraction from the basic fact that they're still just going to want to exterminate everything. Absolutely, yeah. And trying to be positive about Mr. Sayward. Yes. Um, earth shock. <laughs> is a great example of bringing back an old monster and having that surprise factor, which I don't think you can really get away with these days. And no. also, more pertinently, Revelation of the Daleks, is, and I and Richard, I've got to confess, Revelation of the Daleks is probably the, epi- the story of Doctor Who I hate more than any other. Really? Yes, we'll come really? into that in a minute, but that's irrelevant. But pertinently to what we're discussing... Revelation of the Daleks is probably the only example of doing a story with Daleks in and having it be an of the Daleks story and having it not be one of those things. Yes. Well, he was definitely trying to do that. I mean, you know, he was basically trying to cheat slightly under the... Yeah. You know, he had the title, he had, you know, had the Daleks there. He, as you say, he didn't use the Doctor um, very much to begin with. And he had a set of characters that he'd fallen in love with. And this theme based around kind of, you know, death and... and all, he, it was, yeah. And, and the loved one, the evening Wars. Yeah, yeah. So he had these influences. He went off to his holiday... Uh, where he was going to write it, and he got a few more influences, influences there. And it was very much his piece. I think, you know, that's that's as true to being a kind of reflection of Eric Saywood's tastes and sensibilities as anything. Very bleak worldview, which, of course, was the thing that really came to return to haunt them 
from season 22 was that Sayward's view of the world in dramatic terms is that people struggle and die. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't life affirming, a lot of it. No, and perhaps the other problem there as well is that Robert Holmes has had such a success with Caves of Androzani that Eric Sayward was trying to replicate that. I think Eric was always slightly trying to... I mean, yeah. Robert was his huge hero. But I, I think that how, it's great. I and mean, obviously, why would you not, you know, think that Robert Holmes would be a hero if you, if you were writing? Because, I mean, in Doctor Who terms, this was the guy that had done some of the greatest stuff. But Absolutely, I think that, yeah. that maybe that hampered, maybe that got in the way a bit. I, I mean, think I remember it did. Reading well, I those two, two Doctor scripts, I remember reading those scripts and thinking, these are great scripts. And, and yet when they were, when they came out, they were... Well, they were, I just didn't like the execution of it. And I felt that it, you know... Yeah. That's well, Peter again, isn't it? But the reason I've mentioned that, the only reason I've mentioned that, is I think that gave me an idea of Sayward's frustration, that he would see, he would deliver on paper sometimes something that in the right hands could have been really good, only to then have to sit and watch it translated into something yeah. that very good. Something like how, that. How frustrating would that be? Absolutely. Look, what I, the, what I was about to say as well, um, you know, with you talk about Eric Sayward looking up to Robert Holmes and we mentioned him trying to replicate the kind of thing that Robert Holmes would have done. Mm. But this is the first period in Doctor Who's history where the writers, the script editors, the producers, the people behind the stories aren't just doing what they want to do, but doing what somebody else has done before them. Nobody else has ever done that in Doctor Who. And, okay, they do it now, Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat, because they've got the benefit of 20 years of hindsight and mistakes, that they know how to do it. But Eric Sayward comes in and perhaps is trying to do a Robert Holmes, but doesn't know how. He's not Robert Holmes. He can't be Robert Holmes. He's trying to replicate something that's happened, you know, the best part of a decade before, and here it is not quite working. I think one of the problems they had in the 80s was that they still had a 60s template for the show. Yeah. And nobody had the uh, wherewithal or imagination or whatever you want to call it to sort of blow that up or turn it on its head. You know, they just, I think the expectation was we just want more of the same pretty much every year. Whereas when Russell brought the show back, I think that he hadn't just learned from the hindsight of Doctor Who. I think he also brought with him a really innate understanding of shows like Buffy and American 50-minute formatted shows. And a lot of the kind of energy, structure, the things that came with the new run of Doctor Who. And you know, I think Russell also, yeah, I think he also brought a bit of the, uh, I don't know what it was called then, the X factor to it as well. Yes, I mean, he had a real understanding of popular television. I I was just going to say that in a a sense, I think uh, Doctor Who in the 80s aspired to have that kind of populist stunt casting and things like that, but just didn't always get that right. In fact, sometimes really buggered things up by getting the wrong names involved or whatever. Whereas I think with a few exceptions, because you can't always get it right by and large the stunt casting of, of recent years has, has really worked in the show's yeah. favor yeah mark were you about to say something um i've lost my train of thought now okay <laughs> sorry <laughs> we well, all have that feeling <laughs> so we ought to talk about the trial season really 
I mean, that's the way he said that with with infinite weariness. We all. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you're going to tell. Isn't there a book called "We Ought to Talk About Kevin"? <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who version is "We Ought to Talk About the Trial Season." Well, if you're going to talk about Eric Sayward, you can't really ignore it, can you? Well, it really was the trial of Eric Sayward, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, it was his idea, the trial. It was. And it was a bloody awful idea. I mean, the idea was was bankrupt from the off. And if there's one thing you do not do, it's you point, not just in the programme, but in the title of the programme, to the problem your programme's having. And also tying up all your storyline into, you know, one one 14-episode arc, when most courtroom drama is an acquired taste you know it can be gripping but quite often it can be wordy verbose dull and and obviously he by that point understood the limitations of doctor who he knew it was going to be in a multi-camera studio with people like ron jones directing it Mm. so to hand them pages of of this kind of over um verbose dialogue you know, getting in the way of the actual action and the plot progression. And, of course, you know, you knew the Doctor wasn't going to be guilty at the end of it. So it kind of, it just didn't have any energy. No, it was very, very, it was a, you're right, it was just the wrong, wrong, wrong idea. I can so remember at the time when they had that first meeting, I think in July of 85, they had this meeting and, and, you know, uh, uh, when I heard that they got writers like David Halliwell and Jack Trevor Story in and I thought, oh my goodness, they really are trying to, you know, they're, they're taking, I mean, as indeed I suppose we all assumed at the time that they would have to take really seriously the fact the show had nearly been cancelled and then had been sort of put on trial and that they were getting these writers in. But then when the concept of that season became clear, I guess I can remember, I don't remember there being huge enthusiasm from anyone really at the time. I think it was, it just, I think it was a clapped out idea. And, and because John wasn't ever going to be able to be the person who could say that, because he just didn't really get that sort of thing. And also by now, yeah, he did trust Eric. I think Eric, you know, he had a, by that point, a lot of stories on the go, you know, whole seasons worth of stories with some of those stories, even if they'd done four, four, six or whatever, would have been a much better option yeah yeah or getting the show back on you know so it's very sad to me that trial season is well not unwatchable because i did watch it again but but painful to watch i don't think i've ever i don't think i've ever made it all the way through trial of a time lord to be honest you you, you haven't had a catharsis of spurious (laughs) (laughs) you know what i don't mind pip and jane baker i think of all the voices in the doctor of all the voices in the writing in doctor who in the mid 1980s i think pip and jane baker's are probably those i mind the least (laughs) if you know what i mean well I've pro- you know, I have problems with Doctor Who is an infinite variety of stories with change as part of its basic template. Yes. But at the same time, it must conform also to what Doctor Who is. And the Philip Martin stories, I don't, I'm not saying I dislike them per se, but I don't think there's really a place for those in Doctor Who. They don't fit. That's very interesting because I was thinking back, obviously in the last few months, I've been thinking about this era a lot. And I can remember watching the studio sessions for Vengeance on Varos and thinking it was just fantastic i thought it was i thought it was such a sophisticated idea so clever to yeah. be spoofing that sort of thing and of course now it does get or has had criticism for 
you know, some again, some of the execution of it being too bleak, too grim, the doctor not being the doctor in it enough, and you know, so on and so forth. But I, I think it's difficult because there, Saywood was trying to court and involve an established writer stroke producer, someone who really did have, whether you agree with it or not, he came to it with something to say that was different. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, it's difficult because you can't, you know, you can't criticise Saywood for, um, you know, for not really delivering the goods uh, all the time because he was, you know, I think at various points he was bringing in people like Philip Martin who, who were upping the ante a bit. They were trying to kind of... Um, you know, say something beyond the usual runaround. I have to say, at the time, Vengeance on Varos was the one I was most impressed with in season 22, but nowadays it's the one I'm least likely to fetch off the DVD shelf. That's interesting. Yeah. That interesting. My, uh, my, my opinions on the whole of 1980s Doctor Who have almost completely flip-flopped since I watched it. That's the prerogative of age. Yeah. <laughs> It's like these yeah, days. I think JR, in, in a previous conversation about this era, I think you made a really astute observation that towards the end of that sort of Sayward period, the show stopped reflecting the world around it and became very introverted and focused on its own kind of dynamics. Yeah. Dynamic, yes, yeah. that's right. Jump yeah. the shark is basically, you know, that's what that expression really I, means. I, I think the other thing to say, and I, you know, I really, really believe this, I believed this at the time, I've never stopped believing this, that when they decided to cancel stroke, postpone the show, the the cynicism of then keeping the same creative team in charge with almost no yeah. feedback I mean, it's disgraceful, really, because, you know, it's like a kind of form of um, torture by entertainment. Philip Martin would like that reference Um, because (laughs) you're you're basically keeping these two guys in these little tiny offices saying, we're not giving you any more money. We're not giving you any respect. We're not giving you any guidance. We're not giving you any faith or belief. Just just see what you can come up with and we'll probably hate it anyway. And in those circumstances, who on earth was going to be able to come back from that sort of all bells and whistles with something new to say and confident. I think that's why the trial season was, it was almost kind of absolutely doomed before it began because there was this, there was no energy in the process. The most astonishing thing really is that there was another season afterwards, quite frankly, given the viewing figures and everything else. I I was just astonished that it probably to do with, you know, things like commitments to worldwide. And, Mm. and also I think there was this apathy. I mean, the thing I most picked up, you know, doing the research for the book was this kind of institutional sort of, Oh, well, you know, if we don't do it, we'll have to do something else. There'll still be 14 slots to fill. We might as well do another one, you know, and if we're going to, we'll give it, I think Jonathan Powell used the phrase, you know, one last throw of the dice was getting rid of Colin and bringing in Sylvester and bringing in Sylvester meant they had to kind of commit probably to a couple of years at least uh, because they were going to contract him, you know, and money was being spent. And so I think that, that there was a sort of half hearted kind of, Oh, we'll totter on a bit, but it never had, from the moment the show was postponed, it never had the faith or belief or confidence of anyone above. And that must have been really awful for the people working on it. Bringing McCoy, you know, much as I hate to say it, and, I, you know, I'm not saying this to disparage Colin Baker, but bringing in McCoy was what they needed to do for season 23 in order for it to come back with a fresh face for yeah. an audience to yeah. want to engage with it again. I think that's a very interesting point that, in a way, 
goes back to, you know, they didn't change John and Eric. In my opinion, that was really negligent. And I, that's not because I think that John and Eric should have been punished. I just think that for, for them as well, yeah. they, needed, they needed to do something different. But the BBC kept them in place, kept Colin in place. It, in Nowadays, you know, I can't imagine that... that if that were to happen, they wouldn't say change everything. That's yeah. a TV mentality. You know, change the presenter, change the lead actor, you know, make changes. But they just sort of limped on with it. And again, Colin, who has the misfortune of sort of always having been in the wrong place at the wrong time yeah. to then, you know, he, he and I, I think it must have been so painful to have to be at the front of that, you know, because you are obviously, if you're the lead actor, you're the one going out and doing the PR and all the rest of it. Whilst inside, you know that what you're being given in terms of, of scripts and things is, is no different. Mm. Probably, probably slightly worse. You know, trial of a time Lord is a bit like asking a clown to go back up on stage with a completely new act, but not giving him any kind of a clue as to what you want him to do. I also think... And he comes out and does yeah. the same thing again, you know? Well, again, look at who was directing him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, he was the directors of that season. No, well, to be fair, I think Chris Clough was, had um, something about him, but, but I, the first two directors, I thought, were pretty woeful. I mean, mm. I'm talking about the end results. I'm not talking about them as people. I think they were no, both, no, no, no. They were lovely people, but lovely. It goes back to that thing that having a kind of cozy, nice atmosphere in rehearsal or filming. You know, everybody. They, you know, most of the actors who worked with Peter Grimwade had a pretty miserable time and don't have very nice things to say about him. But what a show he made! But the results were, yeah. from the point of view of an audience, infinitely preferable to a Ron Jones epic. Imagine what Eric Saywood was thinking. Yeah, imagine what Eric Saywood was thinking when he's got Philip Martin to come in and write two Doctor Who's, and he gets Ron Jones stuck on both of them. Well, I think that's. I think he did say that. He certainly said that about mm. two Doctors. You know that he thought Peter Moffat was the sweetest man, and he absolutely was, but that he ruined the two Doctors. You know. <laughs> It's, even though I, I still think, actually, um, The Two Doctors is one of the more watchable parts of season 22, purely because of Holmes's dialogue, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, you, but then that's still, that's escaped the treatment. You know, yeah. like, there, there are a lot of aspects of that story where you can just imagine if that had been a Graham Harper or a Peter Grimwade, it just would have been, it would have had so much more zing about it. But from, you know, uh, pu purely as a viewer, Doctor Who really wasn't engaging me then. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things I found fascinating in the last few weeks as the 80s have been chewed over in all sorts of different ways mm. is that um, there's, a, there's a kind of fashionable, you know, oh, but, you know, um, you, you know there, there are all these cliches about the 80s, you know, you, people saying this, and that's absolutely wrong. And, of course, when enough time has passed there becomes a revisionism of revisionism. Yeah, yeah. So that, so that no idea can be accepted and not be challenged. You know, you can't say, like some of the things I've said today, you know, you know that some people will be tutting and going, that's just an old fan cliche. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in fact, no, it's not. It actually happens to be true, you know. Well, yeah. But, but you know, there becomes this kind of a, a necessity to reinvent or re-examine everything every so often. And, and that can muddy the water. But but I think the headline is, you know, it was such a tough show to work on. And I think that there was an absolute dysfunction in the relationship between John and Eric that increasingly damaged the process of actually getting the best scripts made. 
So I think to John's credit, um, I know you said earlier that you felt it was a mistake to, to keep him and Eric on. Yeah. Um, I mean, later down the line, he wanted to go, uh, but was then kind of put in this position at a very short notice that he had to stay, otherwise the show was going to go off the air. And to his credit, he put together something that was, was broadcastable. He was a pro. Yeah. I mean, the, th- yeah. the thing is, John would, would, you know, he he accepted that he was a staff producer. And if the BBC had said to him, go and produce Cracker Jack, he'd have done it. You know, but the only thing they were giving him to produce was Doctor Who with, as you say, very little lead time. So he just did what he could. Um, and I think he was very beaten up by it. And actually, as I think, you know, is, is clear, he was he was very ambitious and he had from very early on, been trying to get other projects off the ground. But now, anything he, he put up there, and obviously there were some dreadful ideas, but I think that happens with every producer. You know, they, they, they're they kind of desperately clutching at anything that might be the next big thing. Um, but there were some good ideas too, and he just yeah. never was given that opportunity. And, of course, the show suffered too, because he was stale. So, rounding up... The story of Eric Sayward. I don't want to go through the whole resignation like thing. <laughs> Ladybird book of Eric Sayward. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, because I want to get back to talking about your book, Richard. Yes. Oh, good. Oh, yes. Let's talk about the book. Yeah, uh, but I just well before we just sort of knock Eric Sayward on the head. I've been, that's, that's the only that's reason I wanted to do yeah. this episode, so that I'd be able to say that at the end of it. <laughs> you said um, it now. <laughs> yeah. Look, I don't want to talk about the resignation. We all know the story of that. Um, I, I don't think we need to go over it. Only insofar as to ask you, was it the right thing to do, and did he do it in the right way? I think he... I think there was no... I just think he had to go and he knew he had to go and he stayed on longer than he felt was right. And, you know, so yes, he, it was the right decision for him to leave, but I think it was absolutely the wrong decision for him to, to go. In the lurch like that. Well, no, not even that. I mean, I think he could have kind of been discreet about going and, and, you know, helped out a bit and all the rest of it. But I think what he did subsequently and, I, and the main reason I'm saying this is because of the damage it did to him. You know, the fact is, however painful it was for John and embarrassing and for the show and for the, for, and how, and of course, one mustn't forget that it was one of the first things that fans at the time had ever seen the harsh light of reality on their yeah, show. Yeah. And I mean, you know, a lot of it was petty and unnecessary. He didn't need to criticise actors. He didn't need, you know, actors were just taking the job. Why slag them off? You know, he he made a lot of pot shots at people that he didn't need to. And it, and it really, I think it ruined his career. But the final thing I'll say about, about the whole consequences of that are that here we are, 30-odd years later, and Eric is still eaten up <laughs> with his feelings of bitterness yeah. and anger and and that is unhealthy by anybody's standards yeah. um, and therefore i i you know i would say that you can't not feel the sadness of that that here's a guy who came in did his time did some really good stuff certainly had good intentions and the show kind of in its way devoured him just as it devoured john unless Let's face it, it's not like he sought it out. It's not like he came it's not like he came to Doctor Who asking for the job. He was asked to do the job. 
it's not like any of this. If you, it's like a tragedy almost. In that, it is a tragedy. All these things are things yeah, that it, happen to him, rather than the other way around. Well, I, I'm not sure that I entirely go along with that. I think well, yeah, it's I, always, it's always, you're always partly responsible. Yeah. You have a, you know, you contribute to your own mistakes, mm. but. I think in both their cases, you know, circumstances and, and situations that they were put in and factors they had to deal with that were out of their control, you know, absolutely have to be considered as well. But you can't say that Eric was just an innocent who was kind of... Put no, 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 no. I don't, that's, I, that wasn't really what I meant. What I meant was, you know, if he'd, if it never happened, if he'd never been asked to come and do Doctor Who, he'd probably, you know still be a successful radio writer now or something well he certainly it's that he sliding certainly, doors thing isn't he it? certainly wouldn't still be um capable of huge rage anger and bitterness which is a very no. really you know that is a horrible way to be do you know what he does now no no i don't think anybody terms, does do they oh, well, i think he's probably past retirement age i mean he's in his 60s isn't he oh but i, but, but, I mean what did he do after doctor who because he did he never... some oh he did do some work uh for radio i think abroad oh really uh, i think he he did various work in either holland or germany so i mean i think he he made a living and uh, as best he could but the fact is that you know he always used to say that his ambition was to write you know, a big film thriller series, and maybe that could have happened. But I just think that he was no, no one was going to give him that opportunity in British TV. Not after he'd already that. burned his bridges. He burned his bridges. Yeah. So, Richard, <clears throat> I hear that you've <laughs> written a book. Yes, it's the Ladybird <laughs> book of Eric Sedgwick. It's not much it? It's interesting, isn't it? That that some somebody somebody sent me a message on Twitter. You know, Hang on, before we do, tell us about the message on Twitter afterwards. But okay. For anybody who's listening to the podcast who doesn't actually know, you're Richard Marson. Yes, that's my name. <laughs> because we you haven't Richard actually, Marson. Yes, we haven't actually given your name out yet. I'm just we? a mysterious <laughs> Richard. Yes. Go uh, on, Twitter. Go on. Yeah, no, no, somebody sent me a thing saying, you know, uh, I, you know, oh, you're uh, the promotion for this book is really getting on my nerves or something like that. I was thinking, well, you know, what are you supposed to do? You know, you, you do these things so that people will read them. You don't do them to hide them in a corner and hope that people won't read them. Um, and, you know, you don't, you're not, you know, people don't have to, to buy a copy. It's, it's just that I think it, you know, it, there are so many sensitivities around uh, this story, which I, I understand, but that's the real reason why somebody isn't, you know, it's immaterial, whether it's, you know, plugged on, Newsnight or or somewhere else. Oh, so I'll the phone. That's <laughs> Newsnight. Do you want to edit that out? <laughs> no, no, no. We do. Well, are you going to answer it? No, I'm not going to answer it. Okay. Probably someone offering me double glazing or um, from Poland. We're, we're fairly shambolic on this uh, podcast. We'll probably leave it in because we wish, just. I wish someone would answer it though. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something then, and I forget. Oh, fans—they also don't seem to. So, I mean, I'm generalising, of course. Yeah, I shouldn't You're be. Better get it in the neck for that. Yeah, go on. Yeah, mm. but though you will get fans who don't appreciate the difference between publicity and the kind of hype that comes out of the newspapers latching onto a story. I mean, there are some people who think that all that stuff on the cover of the national dailies was, you know, you and Matt from milk mm. going out there and getting it onto the front of the papers. I think, I think seriously, seriously, the saddest thing is that I would have said beforehand that there would be some people who'd be naive enough to think that we'd orchestrated that in some way or courted it. Um, 
And the reality is that there are people who I've been really surprised by, people with a, you know, I'm not, I won't name names, obviously, but who have that assumption or certainly express that, that view. And you kind of think, what world are you living in? Do you know, do you really think that, that because I honestly don't believe we'd have sold a single extra copy as a result of those stories in the tabloids, because this is a book for people who love Doctor Who or yeah. interested in that era. And people are not going to spend 15 or 20 quid on a book and a passing story that's, you know, no, in, in a rag of the newspaper. And so the idea that that in some way lines your pockets, in fact, what that week or two weeks meant, it was hideous, it was annoying, it was embarrassing. I felt deeply bad for Colin Baker um, in the way that his photograph was used. Mm. I, I was angry that there was absolutely no... You, you, you cannot engage in a dialogue with, with the tabloids. And in fact, if anything, because, I mean, you know, your average Joe living in Coronation Street's never going to buy a Doctor Who book just because there's yeah. a picture of Colin Baker on the front of the paper. But that picture of Colin front, Baker on front of the paper might well mean 20 Doctor Who fans don't buy the book. So chances mm. are you sold fewer copies. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, I'm, I'm sure you're right. And, you know, and, and it has had its knock-on effect, I think, with, with one or two. I mean, I'm sure it's no secret that Colin is not hugely enamoured, I don't think, of, of the fact that the book has come out, um, having been incredibly helpful and given me a lot yeah. of time and all the rest of it. And I think, uh, you know, understandably, you know, apart from the fact that the, the story brings back a lot of very painful memories for him i think he just realized that there would be this kind of hoo-ha in the press um and interestingly i had an email from russell t davis who said to me you know we cannot live in a world where because we're scared of what the tabloids will do or how they'll twist things that we don't say them if they're worth yeah. if we're if they're worth saying we should say them and and he said and you know tell the tabloids to go to hell and, and I suppose the sad thing is that, you know, this assumption that some people have had that, you know, that myself and, and Milk were in cahoots in some way, it's just could not be further from the truth. No, because I, I know Matt quite well. And while all that was happening, just before it was about to break, he was on the phone to me or on the emails to me saying, oh, God, I just wish you know, some other kind of Doctor Who story would break and they'd drop <laughs> this one before it got to the papers. I it, mean, I don't think the BBC were thrilled, let's be honest. No. Back, going back to that point about spin, the fact is, to them, it was pain in the arse because, the, you know, obviously the tabloids chose to run those stories just before the new series yeah, started. Yeah. Again, I mean, the irony is, if we had wanted that to be publicity for the book, it came nearly three months before the book was published. Yeah. So it was terrible timing for us and and but it, but the timing to kind of try and embarrass the bbc and of course at the moment the bbc veer from one hideous embarrassing situation to another and i yeah. just wish they would sort of turn around and say do you know what this is a non-story get lost if you actually pick up the book and read it it's actually a very well balanced uh, piece of writing and it's not the hatchet job that a lot of people seem to assume it's going to be oh yeah, fact, it, yeah. i mean the hatchet job I just think I've been a victim of various hatchet jobs in my time. And I just think, why would you want to write that anyway? That's not very interesting. You know, yeah. it implies that you go into something with one set opinion uh, or a piece of propaganda you want to put out there. Whereas what was interesting to me was that the very fact that he divides opinion so much that you've got people who adored him and people who loathed him. And that's what's interesting. You know, that, 
when the book was announced, which would have been well over a year ago now, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. You know, the thing that excited me, I knew that there were stories like this about John Nathan Turner, and it didn't even pop into my head that they that, that the, the book would address those. The thing that really excited me about it was that here was a man who, insofar as I was concerned, hadn't ruined Doctor Who, but had been the man who was around when I'd enjoyed it the least. Yeah. And, uh, what I wanted was a book that might help me to understand the person who made these, for me, what were mistakes, but that yeah. I just wanted to see the human being on the other side of the program that had been going through this really interesting and frustrating phase. And it didn't even occur to me, you know, oh, they'll go into his sex life and all this kind of stuff. And of course, if I'd have thought about it, I'd have knew that was coming. There I, was, I mean, the interesting thing is there are a lot of people you can think of who you might have written their life story and never talked about their sex life because it wouldn't have been relevant to what they did to their career. But with John, you know, he, he certainly... It was a, you can't just you can't. the two. It would have been a nonsense. I mean, one of the things Colin said to me was, you know, I, 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 you know, I really think one shouldn't speak ill of the dead, and I think that's a perfectly admirable an honourable thing to feel, but it's no, no use to a biographer. No, not very helpful if you're writing a biography. No, also, it's like, and I, I remember having the debate with him before I talked to him about, you know, he was uneasy because I'd talked to Ian Levine and Gary Lee and so on, you know, some of, if you like, John's arch enemies. But again, it would have been a pretty poor show to only talk to the people who, who the love John and who, exactly, and they're part of his story. You know, they're, they're people that mm. John had relationships with, professional or otherwise, you you know, so they they were important to be in in the mix of of who we talked to, and but you know the the, the best thing about that book is that I did get the book I wanted, but it was all Good. those other books as well. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm very glad. I mean, the one thing I slightly regret is the title, because. It, yeah. the, the original publishers we had also I I wanted to call it originally Page Turner. Because I thought, you know, <laughs> and maybe that was a bit too subtle. And they said, well, they basically said it's too subtle. Um, and we, and they said, why don't we call it JNT? And I said, well, yeah, but that, what does that mean to anybody, you know, who... You know, I was obviously hopeful that some people might read it outside of the world of Doctor Who. So I said, I feel if you're going to call it JNT, it needed to have a subtitle that gave it an extra... And it's very fashionable at the moment for books to have, you know, a one-word title with a the life and something of. You'll see lots of examples. Yeah, yeah. But I then very deliberately said, let's call it the life and scandalous times rather than the scandalous life. But that subtlety... Do you I, know what that reminds me of? You know, and I don't know if I'm right about this, but it always makes me think of the kind of Victorian penny dreadfuls that you might well, that, buy yeah. outside a musical yes. back yeah, in... scandalous is that kind of word, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I, I suppose that's the thing I regret, because I kind of think, you know, I wasn't trying to kind of... Uh, be lurid um, and yet it's a lurid word so you know kind of but but the, at the time those those original publishers were happy to go with that and, and you know and it's a kind of one of those things where you need to get a title everyone is happy with because it's getting announced probably nine months before the book appears mm. and it's interesting that there was all I don't think there was any comment about the book's title until the tabloid thing yeah. happened yeah in fact, I think for most people, that title kind of pretty much summed up what they were expecting from the book. And then the tabloid storm kicked off and people were like, oh, you can't do that. The most important thing to me, after all of this fuss and all the rest of it, is, you know, do I stand? And obviously there are things that I look at and think maybe that could have been better written or I shouldn't have said this or whatever. Everybody will have that thought. But 
I the feedback from the people who were closest to John and Gary in the last 10 years of their life, their their friends, their lovers and former colleagues um, it was almost unanimously. In fact, it was unanimously. This is a book that represents the John that we knew. And mm. um, and some of that is painful, but it, it is on the money. And some of them have said to me, John would have loved it. And, you know, that that's a really important thing for me to kind of walk away from the experience of doing it and think, you know, it wasn't that we didn't avoid any of the painful stuff. My goodness, there's a lot of painful stuff in there. But it does also reflect his skill, his energy, his sense of humour, and the things that made him fascinating. It's... Um... A very, it is, yeah, it's a very lively book and quite an eye-opening book and a very sad book. And, but you know what? The thing I found the saddest, this might surprise you a little bit because the last two chapters of that book are both pretty downbeat. Yeah. yeah. But the, the part that most connected with me was after John's dead and you've got another half a chapter on Gary. Yes. That really, that really sort of... I don't know, it kind of, it really got me that bit. Well, I, I think the sad thing is that when, pe- you know, a couple, it doesn't matter whether they're straight, gay, whatever, but when two people come together, have been together for several decades, are devoted to each other, whatever anybody mm. else thinks, when one of them goes first, it's, it's usually f- sad afterwards. And Gary Downey sort of turns, you know, it, on a hairpin from having been the villain of the piece to being this really sad character that you end up feeling sorry for at the end. But I think the thing is, is the interesting is that all of those people, and people have said to me, oh, you know, Jonathan Powell comes out of it badly. Gary Downey comes out of it. I think maybe through a certain perspective, but they're all people. Yeah. They all have different facets, different but, you know, I mean, Jonathan Powell was a hero of mine because of the stuff he produced was so brilliant. Yeah. And, I, and whenever I've met him, and I've met him several times, he's been utterly charming, fascinating, interesting. But then I'm more his kind of person. I think you he know? comes out... For, uh, my, my impression of him from the book was that he's just very honest, and I was kind of not surprised, but happy that he was so honest and that you got that honest opinion in the book and i can't say that i disagreed with a lot of the things he was saying either to be frank i I could i could say that i thought as with is the case with has been the case with many many bbc managers who are people often promoted into a management position from a production background therefore then they're not in it because they've got a skill at managing people no i think jonathan himself was basically saying i didn't know what to do with him i didn't know what to do with the show and I just basically turned my head and concentrated on the other things that I thought mattered. Now, that is a hard position to defend if you've got any sympathy for John and any interest in Doctor Who, but it is understandable if you think about Jonathan Powell yeah. and everything else he was doing. Absolutely. I don't think he's a bad person. No, I, you need I, to, you almost kind of need to read that book not as a Doctor Who fan in order to really understand all the positions that people have course, taken up. And, of course, the irony is, you know, that it's of principal interest to Doctor Who fans. But yeah. I thought one of the reviewers was, was spot on when they said that the worst irony for Jonathan Powell is no matter how many BAFTAs or whatever, it's unlikely that anyone will write his biography. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, you know, that John John's life is going to interest people, you know, who, who are around probably after we're all dead and gone because that's the power of Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. I think it's also a fascinating look at the way that television was made back then as well. Fascinating and alarming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you think what they had to... I mean, it is amazing. I often have that thought when I watch 
uh, a Doctor Who from the classic series, I look at it and think, whatever its limitations, very often I'm stunned by what they did achieve, knowing the circumstances in which they had to make it. In fact, I've read some of those pages when they when you were talking about the I'll call them the hustings when the um, television programs went up and were looking for money cap in hand. Oh yes, yeah. and I'm just looking at that and thinking it's astonishing actually that any of these programs get on the air at all. Well, I think it's never that that the, one of the problems that the series will have now will be money because yeah, uh, even though the budget will be bigger, you can bet it's probably had its economies and cuts forced upon it. It's a very oh, yeah. odd thing that happens with the BBC is that you you know the the more successful you are, the more they kind of think you can do it for less money. Mm. I mean, I used to get this on Blue Peter, and we had a you know, when I was there, we were very lucky to have a pretty sizable budget and we did lots of ambitious stuff but every year there would be some new board that would come in and say well we thought we could cut 10 percent here and your job was to sort of you know as you say in the hustings you would kind of go and say oh but if you do that we won't be able to do this and we've got great plans to do this and you had to kind of resell the whole yeah. concept of a program that had been around for years and some years you'd win and some years you'd lose and i think with doctor who john was in a continuing run where every time he went in to try and argue for a bit more money they just kind of weren't interested really and, and often took money away from him yeah right i think we've probably been talking long enough <laughs> um, uh, is anybody left who's still listening oh they will be they will be well i hope they are <laughs> if anybody's still listening you can email richard at oh thanks <laughs> and i'll give you a special badge <laughs> homemade podcast badge the, the blue the blue box badge the blue box badge absolutely yeah. um Come with an id card though Tell, tell me one thing, Richard, before you yes. go. Now that the book's out and you've uh, the dust's kind of settled a bit, yes. are you happy? Um, what, with the book? Yeah, um, with the book or with the way it's ultimately been received? I think... Uh, just I the think fact that you've done uh, it. It's too... Um, I am really pleased that I did it. It's the book I... Pretty much the book I wanted it to be. And uh it's i i thought at the very beginning what have i got to contribute to the world of doctor who if you like uh you know in other words there's so much stuff out there a couple of people had said to me you know going back years uh, how about a book that's got some sort of doctor who theme or Do and i and i thought this is the thing i can do i'm interested in john it seems to me that he's a major figure in doctor who whether or not you approve of what he did or his legacy and i th or thought that it really warranted drilling into with as much detail as i possibly could give it and and kind of forensically examining everything but also broadly from a kind of human perspective rather than from you know the, the nitty-gritty of making the program and that's what i try to do and i think that i think i have managed to do that and so from that point of view yes I, i'm pleased with it i think the real answer to that question will come perhaps even further down the line when people have forgotten all the ridiculous you know sideshow of of some uh, that's been made and concentrate on you know what's actually in the text and you know whether or not you get upset about the occasional swear word or whatever um the fact is that you know hopefully most of that will speak for itself you know that was so astonishing though walking into you know the supermarket and seeing that interview that you and i did 
on the front of like the Daily Mirror. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I was just, I, I, you know, because I've had kind of dances with the tabloids before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you kind of know where they'll go with something. And the trouble is, your original interview, they obviously they take a, a couple of. Was, I sounded yeah. like a PG Woodhouse character saying something about, you know, <laughs> oh, oh, he got a bit frisky with me. I mean, I what? <laughs> well, you know, and obviously, when I was talking to you, I was trying to kind of avoid using words that were too harsh uh, or, yeah. but the result of that may, honestly made me sound like i was wearing a monocle and plus four so it got a bit frisky with me what an idiot you know <laughs> so you sort of look at that and and you think you know but that's that's just the way that those those things operate you know i'll tell you one thing the guy uh, you know my wife and i would i funnily enough i went to the party for the closing of tv center yes of course. that evening uh, a reporter from the sunday times turned up on the door and tried to kind of con her way into the house. And my wife was sort of saying, why do you need to come in? No, you don't. Oh, please, can I come in? I just need to call a cab. You know, well, you stand there and I'll call one for you and all this. So that, that was going on. And then we had reporters kind of every day after that ringing the doorbell. And the guy from the Sun said to me quite cheerfully, oh, we, we're not really interested in the detail. We just want something that's going to make trouble for the BBC. And I nice. said, well, that's your agenda. It isn't my agenda. Good day. You yeah. know, and, and actually I was pleased that there was no real follow-up because they've really tried they were offering a lot of money to, to people who'd reviewed it um uh, for a copy of the manuscript because one of the things that maddened them was that we wouldn't let them have a copy of, of the manuscript because i just thought no yes, i'm yes. not cooperating in any way with this i can't stop you doing what you want to do but you know, it was so frustrating that uh, it was so pre-publication. I wanted it to be out there so that people could make a rational judgment. Instead of thinking, you know, exactly, instead of thinking this is going to be some sort of hideous uh, stitch-up. You know, the worst thing about the whole situation was the fact that I was the only person who had a copy of it who didn't get offered money. <laughs> oh, my heart bleeds. <laughs> I, know, I know one of them got offered 15 grand and I was offered 40 grand. And really? my, wow. my wife said to me, you're getting so much hate from, from uh, some... The money. The money and, and stick two fingers up. And I, I kind of had a moment of thinking, yeah, maybe you're right. And I said, no, I th if, I, if I were to accept that kind of money from... A, from a tabloid i couldn't look in the mirror again i don't look yeah. in the mirror often i hasten to add because it's not <laughs> a shock but you know you you don't you have to go you have to kind of live with your own conscience don't you and plus I, of course yeah. you yeah. take that money from the tabloid and if word gets out you don't work again either well, that's possible. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I'm doing something for the BBC at the moment and a couple of BBC mates of mine have sort of said, but the interesting thing is, is a lot of those people, of course, are well aware of how these things work and they knew that it hadn't come from me and that I wasn't kind of soliciting mm, it. It was just yeah. like, you know, just, you know, you just have to go through that and they'll be on to the next stupid story. Um, I mean, uh, and also the other thing is I should just very quickly say, I, I accept that if you do something like this, you are going to go. I knew that there would be something. And I thought, well, it's not as hideous as being like some of the fat, like that family of April Jones or whatever. No, no, no. Who no. will be having, you know, in a situation like that where they should be getting kind of maximum support and privacy, they're actually getting, you know, that full tabloid treatment. And that's far worse. And I, I'm not putting, I'm not saying I'm a big sad victim or anything. You know, I knew it came with the territory, but it's just a, it's just unfortunate that it does 
fortunately, it lasted, what, all of two days, I think? Exactly, the... because it's a non-story. Yeah. You know, they, the fact that they had to build in some, you know, I, as I said, he wasn't a paedophile, as far as I could tell, no. so there was no story. If he had, if he had been Jimmy Savile too, it would have been a story. I bet my girlfriend said to me, is this going to, how long is this going to last? And I said, that's it. There's nothing exactly. else for them to tell. Exactly. And it, and it was so garbled and garbage, basically. Um, I, I was disappointed that, you know, the Guardian review, whilst sort of throwing its hands up in shock horror about, all oh, that this is the frankest book ever and it contains crude and vulgar lewd material, but let me talk about that and nothing else. You know, I did, mm. I did think that's a classic case of hunting with the hare and running with the hounds. You yeah, know? yeah. But again, you can't complain because that's that's the way that's the way journalism is now, and and um, you you know you can be annoyed by it, but you can't be surprised by it. Anyway, Richard, yes. Mark and I have been texting each other for the last fifteen minutes now about how much we need a cup of tea. So we are going to. <laughs> uh, I notice I'm not included. Where's my text? I, I I'll get the kettle. We haven't really, but I do need a cup of tea and a pee. So what I'm gonna... saying is, shut up, you windbag. Yes, you do. <laughs> you do certainly know how to talk, Richard. Oh, I go on. Yeah, but it's been an happy ab- match, Jr. But <laughs> no, but seriously, it's been. It has been great having you on. Oh, thank you. It's been yes, really, thank really you so fun. much for coming on. I've enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank and you. I'd like to do it again sometime in the future. Let's try and Absolutely. sort it out. Absolutely. I'll try and maybe talk less next time. <laughs> well, we're going to have you on our Jerry Davis edition. So. <laughs> yeah, I've got not much to say. I did actually interview Jerry Davis. And oh, he, my God. I had, picked the wrong one again, didn't I? Yeah, he had a very young, <laughs> had a very young girlfriend who was very charming. I remember her. <laughs> oh, really? Yes, oh, American lady. I just hope the Daily Mirror aren't listening to this now, because that could be the next... <laughs> They're not that young. Calm down. We're all legal. <laughs> oh, fair enough, fair enough. Right. Um, okay, and on that bombshell. You. Thanks a lot. Until next week, I was JR. I was Mark. I think I'm Richard. <laughs> and we'll speak again soon. Piddle sticks. Oh, we're all a lot closer in sync than we usually are when Simon oh, and Lee are on. How weird. Maybe they have so What you're saying is you'd rather have Richard on every show than Simon and Lee. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Of course. <laughs> you haven't heard the nonsense I'm going to come out with yet.